0: Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free.
1: Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. Shall we Oh, with, it's good with, to be with you, Brian. Shall we start with current events as, as we uh, <laughs> seem to be able to do just about every time now?
0: Well, the Constitution obviously is far from being dead. It's being played out in the Congress and in the courts all over the country right now. And so it's a very, very current document, although I think you and I would both agree that does not mean a living document in the sense that its meaning changes with time. Those who call it a living Constitution, meaning that every generation should be able to reinterpret it, What they mean is every generation of unelected federal judges should be able to reinterpret it, and that the rest of us would have no recourse about that reinterpretation. But some of the founders referred to our Constitution as a Constitution for the ages. And I would emphasize that we don't need a living Constitution, we need an enduring Constitution, the protections of which are available for all time. But we are seeing a number of things still being played out in Congress right now. One of them is a stimulus bill of $1.9 trillion, a little bit of which might be going to help the COVID issue, the rest of which is mostly pork. And I'd have to say that the vast, vast majority of this is things that are in no way delegated to the federal government by the Constitution, meaning then that the federal government has no authority in these areas, and so I have to say that entire bill is, the vast majority of it at least, is unconstitutional. Although we do raise an issue, I mean, personally, I don't really think the government has the responsibility to bail people out when they run into emergency situations in their businesses and the like. On the other hand, if the state is telling a business they have to close, it may be that the state owes some compensation for the closing that the state itself has ordered. I can see some argument to that effect. But anyway, that looks at this time like that's gonna go through. And if you get a stimulus check, you might want to donate it to an organization that is fighting big government, and that would be ironic to do that. We also have a couple of bills that are currently before Congress that have been passed in the House on almost a straight party vote. One of these is the Equality Act, which we've already talked about before, and which, if it is adopted, will basically break down all gender distinctions as far as the law is concerned. It will mean that there is no basis on which anyone can refuse to allow men to compete in women's sports or use women's restrooms and showers and the like. It means that women's shelters for abused women and children will have to admit men who identify as women at the time and so on. And all kinds of issues like that, that would be broken down by this Equality Act if it is passed. I think there is a very good chance that if it is passed, much of it will be struck down by the courts, but at any rate, it is still there. Might add on that same issue, we have had a decision by a federal judge in the D.C. District Court concerning the Equal Rights Amendment And you may recall the Equal Rights Amendment was originally proposed back in the 1970s, and if adopted, the Equal Rights Amendment would do much of what the Equality Act is supposed to do if it becomes law, but this would have been a constitutional amendment. Now, the Constitution doesn't specify how long states have to ratify an amendment, but Many times when Congress passes an amendment and then they send it to the states for ratification, they say that the states have seven years to ratify or the amendment will be null and void. And that's what they did here with the Equal Rights Amendment of the 1970s. Well, quite a few states passed it very quickly, and then a number of people started raising objections, probably the most noteworthy of these was Phyllis Schlafly of Eagle Forum. And when she raised her objections, and a number of states then kind of stopped in their tracks and refused to ratify, and several states that had ratified even rescinded their ratifications, although there's still a question whether a recension of a ratification is valid. But at any rate, it was getting toward, I believe it was the 1979 seven-year deadline, and the necessary three-fourths of the states had not ratified. So Congress then proposed a, or in fact passed, a three-year extension of the ratification deadline. A federal court in Idaho ruled that the extension was invalid, and this was appealed on up to the U.S. Supreme Court, but before the U.S. Supreme Court could rule on it, the three-year extension time had also expired, and no states had ratified during the three-year period, and so from 1982 on until a year or so ago, everybody just assumed that this amendment was dead. But then a year or so ago, several of the radical egalitarian feminists got the idea that we could seek to renew the ratification of this amendment now. And they came up with a theory that really has no basis in the Constitution, that the state cannot put a limit on the time it's sent to ratify. And therefore, the limitations that Congress imposed were invalid. Therefore, states can ratify it now. And so, three states ratified. Those were Illinois, I believe the next was Nevada, if I recall correctly, and then Virginia. However, the U.S. Director of Archives simply said he didn't recognize this as valid ratification, and so he refused to accept those ratifications. They filed a suit in court forcing him to accept those ratifications. And just a couple of days ago, the Federal District Court for the District of Columbia ruled that those ratifications are invalid, that the time period expired in 1979. If they want to propose a new amendment and start from square one once again, they can do so. But this judge simply said that the amendment is dead. And interestingly enough, Judge Contreras is not a Trump appointee. He is an Obama appointee but he was ruling based on what the Constitution plainly says. Anyway, so this may well be appealed, but I'm quite confident that, I don't know what the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals will do, but I'm quite confident that the Supreme Court will agree with Judge Contreras, and so it looks like the Equal Rights Amendment is dead, and I would say that is a good thing. We also have the For the People Act, and this again, has been passed by the House by a very narrow margin, again, on very close to a straight partisan vote. It now goes to the Senate, and essentially what this act would do is everything that we saw going wrong in the election of 2020 in these various states that had contested elections, Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and then Georgia and and Arizona and Nevada, that every one of the illegal things that were being done there, like same-day voter registration and advanced voting and limited ID checks and all sorts of things like this, this would be nationwide, It would be mandatory, forced on all 50 states, and it would be permanent. And anyway, we have written to the all members of the Congress, urging them to oppose this, and explaining that not only are these things wrong, they are constitutionally invalid because the Constitution plainly says that these elections are to be determined by state legislatures, with a few exceptions not by Congress, and if this is passed, we, again, are quite confident it will be struck down by the courts, but hopefully it won't be passed, because one thing we still have in the Senate is the filibuster rule, and the filibuster rule allowing Congress or Senators to speak for an unlimited time opposing something which can be overcome only by a cloture vote of 60, that is still in effect. Two of the Democrats, Senator Manchin of West Virginia and Senator Sinema of Arizona have said that they will not support closure. Therefore, the chances of these bills getting through the Senate are very questionable at present, but they are a concern.
2: heard about MediShare, and you know what it is? It's the affordable alternative to health insurance. But you've wondered, can I really save a significant amount of money on my monthly health care bills? And the answer is an emphatic Yes, you can. You can save a lot of money, whether it's just for you or for an entire family. MediShare has an option for you. In fact, the typical family saves $500 a month switching to MediShare. And it really is the gold standard when it comes to healthcare sharing. You get free telehealth services. You get a huge network of doctors. You get great customer support. And you get the sense of security that comes from being a part of 400,000 people who share not just each other's medical bills, but purpose, too. MediShare is a community of Christians who pull together and pray for each other, which is very refreshing right now. If you want more info, it's so simple. You can get a price within two minutes. Call 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE.
3: Excuse me. Why don't you have life insurance yet? I've got diabetes, and I know the price will be through the roof for the pre existing condition. Well, actually... SelectQuote makes it easy to get very affordable life insurance, even if you have a health issue. I'm listening. You'll get quotes from some of the country's most trusted carriers. Even with your diabetes, you can get around $250,000 in insurance for as little as a dollar a day. That would be amazing. <laughs> What's it called again? Select quote. Just call or go to SelectQuote.com to get your free quote. Get the coverage you need at a price you can afford. Call 1-800-694-1010 or go to selectquote.com today. That's 1-800-694-1010 or selectquote.com. Select Quote. We shop. You save. Get full details on example policy at selectquote.com slash commercials. Monthly premiums vary based on health company and other factors. Not available in all states. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance.
4: Want to dominate the stock market in 2021? Looking for higher profit potential? With the COVID vaccines, a shifting political landscape, and a new year, it's virtually impossible to guess what will happen next. With Vantage Point, you don't have to. Text MONEY to 411411 to find out how our technology can forecast market trends up to three days in advance with incredible accuracy. Text MONEY to 411411 to find explosive moves before they happen. Vantage Points patented technology analyzes huge quantities of global data in seconds. Text MONEY to 411411 to find out how. Make 2021 your year. Start predicting trends 72 hours in advance and maximize your gains. Text MONEY to 411411 and experience Vantage Point for free. Protect and grow your capital now. Don't wait. Text MONEY to 411411. Go
1: to vantagepointsoftware.com for terms, conditions and privacy policy. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, it's great to get caught up on uh, some of the current aspects of the Constitution, which are uh, being tested and measured as we speak. And uh, were were there any more events you want to cover before we uh, delve back into a couple of the uh, unvisited parts of uh, Section 3?
0: No, I think we've covered what's most current right now, at least at the congressional level. So let's take a look back at the Constitution again. And we're looking again at Article 3. Remember that Article One is about Congress. Article Two is about the President. Article Three is about the federal judiciary. And a couple of provisions there that we didn't discuss. One of them, in Section Two of Article Three, says that the trial of all crimes, except in cases of impeachment, shall be by jury, and such trial shall be held in the state where said crimes shall have been committed. But when not committed within any state, the trial shall be at such place or places as the Congress may by law have directed." First of all, this recognizes the fact of trial by jury. And it's hard to trace the ancestry of trial by jury, but it seems to have been primarily an Anglo-Saxon institution from the Anglo-Saxon tribes, of Northern Germany and Scandinavia, and that a jury that would hear a case would really be all free men in the particular village. And the idea of all of this was that the common wisdom of all free men was more to be trusted than one exalted ruler or judge. Especially when we look to the idea of a jury today, and a jury is composed of people who are the peers of the defendant, the eagles of the defendant, not government officials who might stand above them, people who aren't on the government's payroll and don't owe any special favors to the prosecutor or the police chief. The idea is that this independent decision of 12 people on a jury is to be preferred over the decision of a professional like a a judge or like a panel of experts or something like this. Now, when it says that the trial of all crimes shall be by jury, there are some who are making the argument now, and I think there is considerable validity of this argument, that when it says the trial shall be by jury, this not only means the decision as to guilt or innocence, but also means the sentence if the jury comes back with a verdict of guilty. That's not the way it's usually done today. Usually today, in most cases, the jury will make a decision of guilt or innocence, and if they decide the defendant is guilty, then the sentence will be imposed by the judge. Some states will have the jury make a recommendation, especially if it's a case of capital punishment, and if the jury recommends leniency, then the judge cannot impose a stiffer sentence than the jury can. There are one or two states in the country still where if the jury comes back and recommends life imprisonment, the judge can overrule that recommendation and impose the death penalty. And I'm inclined to think that that's contrary to what the framers had in mind, particularly this section here, when they talk about the trial by jury. Also told here that the trial is to be in the state where the crime shall have been committed. Now that creates a problem too though, because sometimes we have conspiracy crimes that might involve maybe a multiplicity of actors, possibly even nationwide corporations. And so there could be a number of states where the crime had some kind of a connection or nexus and that gives the prosecutor fair amount of discretion to decide where we're going to bring this trial maybe the place where we're more likely to get a harsh jury or maybe the place that would be the most inconvenient for the defendant now part of this comes out of a grievance in the declaration of independence where one of the grievances the colonies had against england is the colonists were being taken out of their community and being tried maybe even in england and anyway so this was an important right that the founding fathers thought was very important. but it also says when the trial when the crime was not committed within a state such as on the high seas or in a rare circumstance, a American citizen might even commit a crime that violates American law but commits it on foreign soil, then the trial will take place at a place where the Congress will determine. Then we move on now to section 3. And section three deals with treason. Now treason is one of the few offenses that the common law has recognized to be a capital offense. And we have had a fair number of cases of people executed for treason in the United States, many more in England. But there are several things that we see here in section three that are very important. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them, or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Now, the first thing is that we see that treason against the United States is levying war against not it or her, but them, and adhering to their, again plural, enemies. Now, that demonstrates that at the time the Constitution was adopted, people thought of the United States in the plural. Back before the war between the states, if you had made the statement, the United States blank going to war, the missing verb would have been are. The United States are going to war. After the war between the states, we commonly have been saying and say today the United States is going to war. In those days, we recognized that we were a confederate republic of 13 and later more states that were really sovereign states that had joined together for certain purposes. Now we see the United States as one central government with 50 administrative subdivisions. but. The idea is that sometimes language reflects thought and sometimes language helps to shape thought. If you went to war in those days, commonly you would sign up with Ohio Regiment or Virginia Regiment or Alabama Regiment and serve with the regiment in your state even though you'd be serving under the flag of the United States and of your state as well as you went into battle. But anyway, so, That's one important point here. Next thing I'd like us to see here as we look to the crime of treason is that it consists only in levying war against the United States or adhering to the enemies of the United States, giving them, that is the enemies, aid and comfort. Now the point to notice here is that in the American concept, the conscience was it liberty? Liberty of conscience was something that the framers believed in very strongly. That was originally the wording of the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. It was changed from liberty of conscience to free exercise, I think, because they wanted to make very clear that actions as well as thoughts were protected. But when we say that you cannot be convicted of treason, Unless you have engaged in words or actions that give aid to the enemies of the United States, that's different from in England. In England, you could be executed for treason, simply for harboring treasonous thoughts, if it could be proven that you did harbor those treasonous thoughts. But in the United States, no, you can harbor all the treasonous thoughts you wish, but only if they are manifested in words and actions can We call this treason, and can you be prosecuted for treason? There's an interesting book by Doug Kelly, a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in North Carolina called Liberty of Conscience, History of a Puritan Idea, and he ties the Liberty of Conscience idea in with the liberty that was part of the Protestant Reformation, particularly the Puritans.
1: Once again, we thank you for joining us for Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, let's uh, let's pick up right where we left off in the last segment.
0: Okay. We're continuing with our discussion of treason in Section 3 of Article 3 of the Constitution. And a couple more points we need to notice here. We've already said that Treason consists of acts or words here in the United States. Mere treasonous thoughts are not enough. Another point we need to make here is that treason is not the same thing as sedition or insurrection. Sedition or insurrection can mean leading an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States. But it could be a rebellion from within the United States. That would be sedition, that could be insurrection, it wouldn't be treason. It is treason only if you are giving aid and comfort to enemies of the United States and levying war against them by helping a foreign power. Now there's another thing we notice here and that's that no person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. This is a reaction in part to abuses in England where people were sometimes convicted of treason on what appeared to be maybe built up evidence that was very weak and invalid and presumptions about what a person might be thinking. But we say here that it has to be either your confession in open court or it has to be the testimony of two witnesses. And the idea of testimony of two witnesses is a biblical concept. We see both in the Old and the New Testaments that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. The idea here being that one witness can be wrong, one witness can be lying. Now it's possible also that two witnesses are wrong or lying but it's less likely. In other words, rather than just one person's word against another, we want confirmation because human life is sacred. And because man is created in God's image, he is entitled to human dignity. He is entitled to have his rights that are God-given respected and not taken away unless there is good evidence. So Provisions of American law are very clear that nobody can be convicted of any crime without evidence that we would say rises to the level of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's because we value human life and human dignity so much that we wanna take special precautions to make sure that nobody is wrongfully convicted. And that's especially true in the law of treason, where we specifically say in the Constitution, it has to be by the testimony of two witnesses, and while it isn't expressly stated here, it'd have to be implied that those two witnesses have to agree with each other. If their testimony is contrary, then their testimony is not to be believed. Now we also see something else about treason too. The Congress shall have power to declare the punishment for treason. And in many instances, that has been the death penalty. But no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture except during the life of the person attained. It. First of all, we're saying by corruption of blood, this does not mean injecting somebody with a virus or something like that. Corruption of blood means denial of rights of citizenship and providing that. Those that denial of citizenship would apply to their descendants as well. In other words, even if we provide that a person guilty of treason can be deprived of American citizenship, that will not apply to the person's descendants. Punishment is only for the person, not for the person's descendants. And we think about the passage in the book of Deuteronomy, dealing with the law, that The children shall not be put to death for the sins of the parents or the parents for the sins of the children. In other words, it is wrong to punish children for what their parent has done. So if a parent is convicted of treason and if the parent loses his citizenship as a result, that does not affect the citizenship of the children. Well, that brings us to the close of Article 3 And so let's move on to Article 4. As we've seen, Article 1 is Congress. Article 2 is the President. Article 3 is the courts. Article 4, you could describe as relations among the states. And several provisions that are very important here in Article 4. First of all, what we call the Full Faith and Credit Clause, Article 4, Section 1. Full Faith and Credit shall be given in each state to the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings of every other state. And Congress may prescribe by general laws the manner in which such acts, records, and proceedings shall be proved, and the effect thereof. What this means is, a good example might be a will. Let's say that here in Alabama, I draft a will in which I provide that The property is gonna be distributed in a certain way. And then let's say I move to North Dakota. Now in Alabama, we require that a will has to be witnessed by two witnesses. North Dakota, at least when I was living in North Dakota, had a rule that in North Dakota, a will has to be witnessed by three persons. So let's say that I come to North Dakota I bring my North Dakota or my Alabama will with me, I die, and my executor presents my Alabama will to the probate court in North Dakota. Now, were it not for this clause, the judge in North Dakota might look at that will and say, this will is invalid. It only has two witnesses. North Dakota law says three witnesses. And my executor would say, well, your honor, this will was executed in Alabama. Alabama only requires two witnesses. Judge might say, this isn't Alabama, this is North Dakota, three witnesses are required here, this will is invalid. And that might have been the rule were it not for the full faith and credit clause. But based on this clause, a will that is valid where it is executed, that is where it is signed and notarized, must be accepted as valid and implemented in every other state. A will that is valid where executed is valid anywhere. Same is true of marriages and divorces. If you go off to Nevada and get a quickie divorce in Nevada and Las Vegas that does not satisfy the residency requirements that other states might require for a divorce, that divorce would nevertheless be valid and would have to be applied and recognized in the other states. If you go to Las Vegas and get married in a wedding chapel in Las Vegas, once again, if that marriage is valid under Nevada law, it must be recognized in all other states. This became an important issue back in just a few years ago when we were talking about same sex marriage. And if a state like Massachusetts were to legalize same sex marriage, and let's say to Utah, residents of the same sex go to Massachusetts and go through a marriage ceremony and they come back home to Provo, Utah and declare there in Provo that what Massachusetts has joined together, let not Utah put asunder, would Utah have to recognize that marriage? Well, the law would say probably not until the Obergefell decision and the reason the law would say probably not, is that the courts have applied this to say full faith and credit must be given unless what was done in that other state is contrary to the strongly held public policy of the state. If Massachusetts allows same-sex marriage, but same-sex marriage is contrary to the strongly held public policy of Utah, Utah could refuse to recognize that same-sex marriage until the Obergefell decision, which now says same-sex marriage is a constitutional right, and all states have to recognize it, but that's not based on the full faith and credit clause. point simply being that there are exceptions to the full faith and credit provision when an act of one state violates the strongly held public policy of another state. And I'm sure we're going to find issues when and where that same thing is gonna rear its head again in other contexts, and we'll have to see whether the same the same provision applies in another state. Another issue this might be applied to would be open carry laws. If my state, let's say in Alabama, authorizes, allows open carry with a permit, and I have a permit, we'll talk about what happens if I go to a state that doesn't recognize open carry laws. We'll talk about that in just a moment.
2: you have heard about MediShare, and you know what it is? It's the affordable alternative to health insurance. But you've wondered, can I really save a significant amount of money on my monthly health care bills? And the answer is an emphatic Yes, you can. You can save a lot of money whether it's just for you or for an entire family. Medishare has an option for you. In fact, the typical family saves $500 a month switching to Medishare. And it really is the gold standard when it comes to healthcare sharing. You get free telehealth services, you get a huge network of doctors, you get great customer support, and you get the sense of security that comes from being a part of 400,000 people who share not just each other's medical bills, but purpose, too. MediShare is a community of Christians who pull together and pray for each other, which is very refreshing right now. If you want more info, it's so simple. You can get a price within two minutes. Call 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE.
3: Excuse me. Why don't you have life insurance yet? I've got diabetes, and I know the price will be through the roof for the pre existing condition. Well, actually... SelectQuote makes it easy to get very affordable life insurance, even if you have a health issue. I'm listening. You'll get quotes from some of the country's most trusted carriers. Even with your diabetes, you can get around $250,000 in insurance for as little as a dollar a day. That would be amazing. <laughs> What's it called again? Select quote. Just call or go to SelectQuote.com to get your free quote. Get the coverage you need at a price you can afford call 1-800-694-1010 or go to selectquote.com today. That's 1-800-694-1010 or selectquote.com. Select Quote. We shop, you save. Get full details on example policy at selectquote.com slash commercials. Monthly premiums vary based on health company and other factors. Not available in all states. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance.
4: Want to dominate the stock market in 2021? Looking for higher profit potential? With the COVID vaccines, a shifting political landscape, and a new year, it's virtually impossible to guess what will happen next. With Vantage Point, you don't have to. Text MONEY to 411411 to find out how our technology can forecast market trends up to three days in advance with incredible accuracy. Text MONEY to 411411 to find explosive moves before they happen. Vantage Points patented technology analyzes huge quantities of global data in seconds. Text MONEY to 411411 to find out how. Make 2021 your year. Start predicting trends 72 hours in advance and maximize your gains. Text MONEY to 411411 and experience Vantage Point for free. Protect and grow your capital now. Don't wait. Text MONEY to 411411. Go
1: to vantagepointsoftware.com for terms, conditions and privacy policy. We are back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as we went to break, you were uh, giving, I think, a very relevant example, at least one that seemed to strike a chord with me about uh, what one state recognizes, uh, you know, another state maybe ought to recognize, or should it? you I think you were mentioning, like, for instance, open carry.
0: Okay, let's say that your state has a law that authorizes open carry and maybe requires a permit for open carry, but you get that permit, so you have open carry. And then you travel with your gun to another state, a state that doesn't recognize open carry. Do they have to recognize the open carry permit that, let's say, Utah issued? Does Utah have open carry brand, you know? We do, yep. But let's say you travel to a state that doesn't recognize open carry. Well, this creates a difficult question, and the unfortunate answer is probably not, because basically your open carry permit is a permit by the state of Utah to carry a weapon anywhere within the state of Utah, not within other states. and. Some states are trying to work out compacts that will recognize your open carry law if you'll recognize ours and so on, back and forth like this. But at any rate, that is an area where the full faith and credit laws doesn't exactly apply because like I say, the permit that you get from Utah for open carry gives you the right to carry that gun anywhere in Utah, but can't really give you the right to carry it somewhere else. Well, then we go on to read that the Citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. Let's say, for example, that Utah has, I suppose you have an elk hunting season in Utah, don't you? We do. And and let's say that I decide that I want to come to Utah to hunt elk. We don't have a lot of elk in Alabama. We have white tails all over the place, but no mule deer and no elk. But let's say that I come to Utah and Utah says, sorry, we only let Utah residents have elk hunting permits. And I argue, but based on the privileges and immunities clause, I am entitled to hunt here just like a Utah resident. Well, the court would rule in my favor in part they would say that Utah doesn't have to have a elk hunting season, but if they do, they can't discriminate against people from other states. If they want to say that we're only going to issue 100 elk hunting permits, then they can do that, but they can't give first preference of those to Utah residents. But here's what they can do. They can recognize that Utah residents pay taxes that support the forests and the lakes and so on in Utah, and that out-of-state people don't pay those taxes. And therefore, it would be unfair that out-of-state people could enjoy the hunting and fishing in Utah that that the Utah residents can enjoy at the same price. So they say that interstate commerce can be made to pay its own way. And so if Utah wants to have one price for a Utah hunting license or fishing license and a reasonably higher price for a non-resident license to take into account the fact that Utah residents pay taxes and those from out of state do not, Utah can impose different rates. Likewise, Utah doesn't have to have any state universities, but if they do, they can't restrict enrollment to Utah residents only but they can have resident versus non-resident tuition. Now here's another interesting point here is that we go on to say in section two that a person charged in any crime with treason felony or other crime who shall flee from justice and be found in another state shall on demand of the executive authority of the state from which he fled be delivered up to be removed to the state having jurisdiction for the crime. In other words, if in Utah, let's say I am charged with a crime in Utah and I'm here in Alabama and they discover I'm here in Alabama, the governor of Utah can make a request to the governor of Alabama that I be extradited to the state of Utah to stand trial. And the governor of Alabama is required to recognize Utah's request for extradition. But there is an exception to this too and that is if the governor of Alabama is convinced that I wouldn't receive a fair trial in Utah, then the Alabama governor could refuse to grant the extradition. There are similar principles that apply on an international level. But we had an example, and this is kind of a humorous example almost, but this was several decades ago when California had a very liberal Democrat governor, Jerry Brown, and South Dakota had a conservative Republican governor, and William Janklow, and kind of a flamboyant guy as well, but I, I kind of liked. But anyway, South Dakota, back in the 70s, had had some difficulties with some violence with the American Indian Movement, and the American Indian Movement, several of its leaders were charged with some offenses, including the killing of some law enforcement officers, and fled the state of South Dakota and went to the state of California. Well, one of these was discovered years later living in California. And when this came to the attention of Governor Janklow, he requested extradition and sent a demand to Governor Brown that they extradite... This, I think it was Russell Means, if I recall correctly, extradite Russell Means to South Dakota. Governor Brown said that there was a climate of prejudice against the American Indian movement in South Dakota, and that because of that climate of prejudice, Means would not receive a fair trial in South Dakota, and so he refused to extradite. Well, Governor Janklow responded by giving paroles to several prisoners in the South Dakota State Penitentiary and made one of the condition to their parole that they move to California and establish residence in California. Well, Governor Brown didn't like that, but there wasn't a whole lot he could do about it. But at any rate, those things are exceptions. Normally, extradition matters proceed very simply and very routinely, and it is a means of simply making sure that we can't flee justice by going to another state. And again, we have similar principles on the international level, and once in a while on the international level, when there is an attempt to extradite somebody, this is done with a provision. Let's say, for example, if the country that is seeking to have somebody extradited has capital punishment, but the country in which that person is living does not have capital punishment and does not believe in capital punishment. The other country might refuse to extradite or they might extradite on the condition that the receiving country agree not to seek the death penalty in this case. We had one issue here in Alabama where federal authorities had agreed not to seek the death penalty, but state authorities had not, and so the state authorities went ahead to seek the death penalty. I think that case is still pending, but at any rate, so there are issues that go back and forth here. But here's one thing I just wanted to say as we draw to a close, and next week, we're gonna be looking at another issue, and that is new states coming into the union. All of this is provided in Article 4, Section 3, and obviously, this could be an issue right now as we talk about statehood for the District of Columbia, and statehood for Puerto Rico. So we'll rather than get into those issues today, we're gonna to address those issues next week. But the one thing I wanted to say as we draw this class to a close is that we've had this class going on weekly for about a year now, I think probably a little more than a year. And I can tell you having taught constitutional law for 30 some years now, and having taken constitutional law when I was in law school, that what you are getting here is a much more detailed analysis of the specific provisions of the Constitution than you would get in your average constitutional law class in a typical law school. There in law school, in fact, most law schools, I was at a conference one time where about 30 of us, constitutional law professors, were asked, how many of us, when you're teaching common law, even require your students to read the Constitution. About a third of us raised our hands. But in most con-law classes, you could ace the class by just looking at several provisions of the Bill of Rights and the Commerce Clause and the Equal Protection Clause and the General Welfare Clause and a couple of others, but ignore the rest of the Constitution. Well, we're not doing that here. We're going through it phrase by phrase. So we'll see you next week.